name is Fiona Zeiger and you're listening to The Migration Podcast. Co-productive and co-creative research is all the rage, but what does it entail? Can a research project in collaboration with members of the population studied indeed be realized? And is all research that labels itself co-productive truly so? Or do we perhaps mistake consultations for the co-production of knowledge? Kasia Grabska speaks with Milena Belloni about her experiences doing collaborative research and reflects on which parts of the process have been the most challenging for her. Hello, Kasia. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hello, Milena. This is a very nice invitation. Katarzyna is a social anthropologist and she's been working on gender uh, displacement and the role of art in context of war and conflict. Today we are going to talk mostly about her work on co-production. So co-production of research has been at the center of your past and more recent work. Could you please tell us a bit more about what co-production means for you and how and why you develop such an interest and sensibility. Yes, co-production, that's a word that many social scientists are uh, using right now quite a lot. This also comes from anthropology, from the discipline that uh, that I have engaged with in my uh, life of a researcher. Anthropology came to me as a natural thing, as someone who was always very curious about what we know, how we know, how we create knowledge, who the knower is. And for me, co-production of knowledge in social science uh, really speaks to the breaking of the barriers of who the knower is, who is the one that ultimately decides what knowledge is. So this is where, uh, this is how I understand. And one of the things that I remember very early on from my work, um, before I uh, did my PhD in anthropology, I worked as a researcher at the American University in Cairo with Professor Barbara Harold Bond, who is uh, the founder of Refugee Studies. And she was an anthropologist herself, and she really encouraged us young researchers to think about how knowledge is produced specifically in the context when we are working with uh, marginalized uh, people. So in my first research that I did a long time ago in 2002 in Cairo, I worked on the situation of um, asylum seekers from Sudan and South Sudan. At that point, South Sudan was still part of Sudan, who were denied asylum in Egypt. And this was a highly hidden population, one could say. And there was a way There was a need to design a way uh, to access uh, this population, but also make sure that this population is not exposed to threats and and, um, further marginalization. And this is where Barbara encouraged me to really work with uh, refugees from the community. As a young researcher, I knew nothing about this community. And for me to know and to understand how people live their lives in this highly difficult situation, it really seemed pivotal to, to, to work with people from this community as researchers themselves. So from my first research that I did, I already worked uh, with, uh, with South Sudanese and Sudanese researchers as researchers in the project, not as research assistants. And a lot of the work that they did was really based on um, thinking about what were the issues that are of importance to the community itself. Because as I say, as an outsider, you know, a young uh, European uh, woman coming from uh, uh, from Western education, I knew very 
little about the conditions. So this is the example that brought me really to this collaborative work. And then, of course, throughout my uh, studies, I then developed uh, a lot of interest in the feminist approaches to, uh, especially anthropologists, feminist anthropologists, to doing research, issues around um, hierarchies of knowledge and situated knowledge. As researchers, we have so much power to determine what is known, how knowledge is produced. And uh, then I also had an uh, incredible opportunity to, to continue my work with Barbara Hellbond, who always rem reminded me that to be a good anthropologist and to be a good researcher is really to take into account different points of view and to work both with uh, refugees, but also, uh, for example, the humanitarian agencies to understand also their positionality in the process of, uh, um, of humanitarian aid, uh, the humanitarian system. We cannot understand the complexity of uh, social issues if we only study them from our own perspective as researchers. And I also, you mentioned my interest in arts. Um, I worked a lot with arts already from very early um, time, really, as a child, I was uh, involved in a lot of artistic projects. I was in a dance group um, that had also specific social position in Poland and social role in our society. And I, I saw how also arts uh, creates different types of knowing about the society. So for me, there was also this complexity of knowing that was important. And therefore, how do we work through different methods, embodied methods, collaborative methods, visual methods? So for me, uh, to think about co-creation and co-production, and I rather think of co-creation rather than co-production, is really to think about collaboration with those who participate in the research, how we uh, design these processes through the different phases of research, as the hierarchies in research uh, are present at all stages of research. So it's not only about, you know, working with people in the data collection phase, for example, but really how do we ensure that different points of views about what knowledge is and how, how, how knowledge is understood, they come together at the very early stages of designing a research, through the uh, gathering of materials, through the fieldwork, uh, and through the, through the uh, work of analyzing uh, that material. How can we do it collaboratively? And that I have done a lot already in that first research that I mentioned uh, at the beginning, and including also um, uh, our collaborators, our research participants in the processes of writing or other ways of restitution of research. So this is also a way of bringing uh, their agency and, and, and their own ways of expressing power into the production of knowledge. Let me play uh, the cynical part here and ask you, these days we talk a lot about co-production and co-creative methods, but are these becoming more like empty formulas rather than really way to approach research? And what does it take for you that you really have experience on this field? What does it take for uh, a research to become co-creative? So you spoke about the different stages of research, but in practice, I mean, if you have to give some uh, tips to a young scholar who wants to start with co-creative uh, uh, research, what would you advise? Yeah, there is, there is this uh, way of what is fashionable in research at what stage. So at this particular moment, I think co-production of knowledge has become 
very often an empty word. And I completely agree with you in this. I've also adopted a certain distance to it because I think for me to do really co-production of work, it requires such a huge investment and such a rigor that very often this is simply not possible given the requirements of academic research, especially academic research. A lot of researchers use this word to get, obtain funding. Um, you know, NGOs use this word because that also sounds really good, as if the voices of the people that they are working with are now included in, in the processes of uh, designing, for example, humanitarian aid or development aid. And we've had, uh, you know, for a long time, we've been talking about well, participation, but really this is just a consultation. So uh, I would say... I am very skeptical about this, and uh, I acknowledge the imperfect aspect of uh, co-production. And I really, for me, I, I very often do not use the word co-production in my research, but I talk about collaborative research, because I think this is where we take away this ideal and we make it much more, much more practical. And we also acknowledge that there are different stages in research, as I said, and in some stages, it is much easier to co-create, co-produce, collaborate. And then there are other stages of research where it becomes extremely difficult, if not impossible. So for example, a lot of funding agencies privilege participatory research or co-production of research. And already in the funding proposals, they encourage researchers to produce such proposals, such, such projects. And I remember that was one of the projects that I work with in Holland with a colleague of mine. And we worked on uh, sexual and reproductive health of young uh, Syrian uh, refugees in Jordan. And already in the funding proposal, it was written how we have to do it <laughs> and what the key issues are. And then it said participatory action research uh, should be at the core of the project. Well, this is a huge problem if as a funding agency, you already assume what the questions are, and then you say that it should be a participatory action research, even though the, the, the people on the ground, the, the, those who will be participating in the research have not been even consulted about the call. So we've, we took a very critical stand on this, and we've adapted the whole process for this project. And what we said was that, well, the project is constructed, in fact, not as a participatory project. It's based on research questions that the funding agency is interested in. But what we did in our different phases of research, we've included refugees, different uh, different refugees, Syrian refugees living uh, in, uh, but also uh, Jordanians living in, in Jordan, in the urban areas. We, were, we mainly worked in the urban areas in already in the process of designing research questions and actually questioning, you know, whether what the funding agency was interested in, whether this was the right question to ask. And uh, we had, uh, again, you know, there you become selective. So you have to also be reflexive on this. You have to acknowledge the fact that not everybody is going to be able to participate. You are choosing. Of course, you are choosing. And I think what is important in that stage is to be transparent about this and to say, yes, as a researcher, I also play a role in ultimately deciding who is going to participate in this research. So these are not representatives of the community. These are people with their own positionality and their own position in the community and their own power or, or agency in that community. And that has to be acknowledged. I think the other stages that are important, uh, that are easier probably to do is the, we already talked about the fieldwork. 
where you can work through different types of collaborative methods. And that has been quite well developed in social sciences. So, so this is easier to do. I think the, the, the two stages that are very difficult are the moment of analysis. How do you analyze your material? And how do you include people who you work with in the analysis, especially if you're doing academic analysis that has to be you know, very full of rigor and full of words that are not at all familiar for the people you're working with. So for us in the Sexual and Reproductive Health Project, we did it in a very collaborative way where some of these young women were involved in the process of analysis and they actually used their own ways of understanding the material. And then the last phase of writing. In the writing process, we write usually in English or in French or, or in a language that most likely is very foreign to our research participants. So how do you bring research participants into writing? And then if you work with someone in the writing process, that's usually uh, those who are already in the most uh, privileged position, who have access to the language, who have access to the kind of more complex knowledge. You already introduced the diverse array of creative methodologies that you've used in your work. And video making has certainly a crucial place uh, in, your, in your research. To what extent uh, can video making be a tool to empower research participants and to discover as aspects of social reality which would be neglected otherwise? Yes, yeah, so I've worked with film, I think I would say film more than video for a long time. And that I've worked with film also before I started being an anthropologist and a researcher. Uh, I was already interested in um, film as a medium of, um, of uh, narrating reality, narrating people's lives, but also changing that reality and, and producing a different, uh, a different knowledge, if you wish, on that reality. I was always very much interested in, in documentary filmmaking. It's a powerful way to give a different way of expressing uh, somebody's reality and their take on that reality. But it's also a very dangerous method, and one has to be extremely careful with it, because it's not straightforward. It is about representation, and, and, it's, uh, and it can be highly problematic and ethically um, problematic and dangerous. So I'll give a couple of examples from the work um, that I've done with film. And the first example comes from my PhD. I was doing at that time, I was doing fieldwork in um, Kakuma refugee camps in Kenya with uh, South Sudanese refugees. This is 2005, 2006. And in the camp, and I had this very, you know, I was coming from IDS, from this, all these ideas of participatory work and then breaking the barriers and so on. And I had my camera with me that I always have with me. And I thought um, doing a film, a participatory film in the camp, is going to bring um, a different take, as you say, on the reality in the camp. So I, uh, I decided to work with a group of uh, young refugees, young women and young men in the camp. And I, um, I did a bit of training, but I quickly realized that in fact, this training of video in 2006 was not needed at all because everybody to some extent was already doing video. There was an NGO working in the camp um, called Film Aid that was producing films with the participation of refugees in the camp uh, about different realities in the camp. So I entered, in a sense, the politics of a refugee camp. And my approach to film became, uh, in a sense, instrumentalized because I was seen by, by research participants, by, by, the, by the young refugees I was working with, as someone who was doing uh, videos for NGOs, for development and humanitarian NGOs. And the message for these videos was, one, there is forced, forced marriages in the camp, there is violence in the camp. 
refugees are suffering and refugees are victims. And when I ask these young people to, to produce short films about their own social reality, this is what they came up with. They came with they came back with the films that exactly narrated this. And I thought, gosh, this is really a failure. You know, I I mean, I just got something that is exactly tailored for, for NGOs and the development world. And then I took a step back. I, I did my reflexive turn and I thought, what does this actually tell me about the reality in the camp? And in fact, it told me a lot of hidden messages that I wouldn't have understood otherwise. The, the way in which the politics of development aid and humanitarian aid in the camp permeated the lives of young people, how they started seeing the reality through the lens of humanitarians. So what they were producing, they were producing the knowledge of the Western foreigners in the camp for their own consumption. And at that point, I said, gosh, I'm not going to continue doing this because this is interesting, but this doesn't lead me um, further than that. And then the elder people uh, in the camp said to me, um, could you please send some letters? You're going to South Sudan. Can you please, please send some letters to our families whom we haven't seen in 15 years? And I said, well, okay, very good. I can take these letters with me, but can they read? And they said, no, they can't read. So I said, well, I have my camera. So how about uh, you record messages? And they said, oh, this is brilliant. You know, so I spend a very long time going from one house to another and recording these messages, these video messages. All of them were in newer. I worked with newer refugees from South Sudan, so people spoke their own language. And then I took these messages, recorded video messages back uh, to, to South Sudan. I actually found members of these families. Then they watched these messages and then they recorded their own messages for the members in the camp. And I think this is where I saw, you know, that's the power of this medium. That's the incredible power of this medium, which allowed me when it is used on the terms of the research participants, when they decide how they want to use it, there is a different type of reality that is being produced. And, these in, and in these messages, you know, forced marriages and uh, poverty in the camp were not the main topics of conversation. Um, so, you know, you have to be very alert to how to use this medium. Your answer shows also the importance of uh, serendipity somehow eh? while we do social research. That you cannot just go to the field with some questions in your mind and just expect people to just respond to those. But let's get to your current project, a project called Inspire, that explores the life of artists living in exile. Why did you think it was important to focus especially on them, especially on this uh, category of refugees? And uh, how do you envisage uh, collaboration with uh, these research participants? Why, why this group of uh, people? So this comes from work that I've been doing since really 2002. And I worked very closely with uh, artists. And most of them were exiled artists. These were, uh, you know, Sudanese, South Sudanese, uh, Ethiopians, Eritreans, Iraqis who were living in Cairo and producing uh, art. For me, I was always very much inspired by how art, different types of art, not only visual art, but also, uh, you know, dance, uh, music, how art is both an engine or, or, a, or a way of expressing social reality and commenting on the social reality, but it's also a way to encourage others to move towards uh, social justice, towards social action, towards change. 
And I think, you know, most of this work, really, my, my, uh, my inspiration comes from my own experience um, of being Polish, coming from Warsaw on top of it, a, a city that, uh, that suffered uh, a lot during the Second World War and where the young artists, uh, especially during the Warsaw Uprising in 1944, were extremely active in commenting about the social reality, but also in encouraging others to continue living through the war and conflict. And what I saw as a potential in this project is how to bridge uh, anthropology, sociology, development studies, international relations with other ways of knowing that comes from humanities. Thanks a lot, Kasia, for such an inspirational talk and um, thanks for being with us today. Kasia Grabska is senior researcher at PRIO, the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, and is currently also visiting professor at the Institute of Ethnology at Neuchâtel University.